In the fall of 2016, NBC released a new comedy called The Good Place. Anybody know it? (laughs) The show begins with a young woman opening her eyes. Eleanor is her name. She's sitting alone on a couch in a waiting room. Written on the wall are the words, welcome, everything is fine. The architect opens the door, invites her into his office. He calmly explains the situation. You, Eleanor Shellstrap, are dead. Your life on earth has ended, and you are now in the next phase of your existence in the universe. Curious and a bit concerned, she responds, well, is this the good place or the bad place? You're in the good place. You're okay, Eleanor. You're in the good place. But how did she end up in the good place? And here's where all this connects to our scripture passage for today. The architect explains, during your time on earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. When your time on earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores get to come here to the good place. How similar is this to your own view of how one gets to the good place? How do you plan on getting to the good place? What's interesting is that this view from this show is precisely how many rabbis in Jesus' day thought about it. It's no coincidence that the brilliant creator of the show himself is Jewish. The moral point system is an ancient idea. Listen to how scholar Dale Bruner explains the first century world in which Jesus finds himself, and then hear how Jesus teaches a radically different system. Bruner writes, In rabbinic thought, every sin created a deposit of debt before God, the accumulation of which formed a separating wall between the person and God. On the other hand, every righteous deed contributed to the believer's accumulation of assets before God, and so created a kind of bridge Sins were demerits that separated, righteous deeds that connected. The corporate name for these separating demerits was the term debts. So a debt was a failure to act morally in any given situation. If you want to end up in the good place when you die, avoid avoid debt and stash up moral cash. That's one theory of how it works. But now listen to this. Bruner continues, Jesus takes this well-known word, debts, and the set of ideas connected with it, that one's moral assets must outweigh one's moral debts. Jesus takes this well-known word and tells us that we can ask the Father to wipe out our debts. This is how you should pray, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. We're nearing the end of our series in the Lord's Prayer, and today we explore the line about forgiveness. Some churches use the word trespasses as a way of following Luke's version of the prayer, forgive us our trespasses. We generally follow Matthew's version and use the words debts, forgive us our debts. This translation, debts, can be misleading though, because in our own day, the word debt is a money word, isn't it? When you think of debt... You think of, you know, credit cards and mortgages and the like. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, one might say. But in Jesus' day, saying, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, meant I am morally bankrupt and I don't stand a chance on Judgment Day. That's what they would think of when they thought of the word debt. So as Jesus' disciples, as they listened to their master teach them how to pray, his choice of the word debts stirred within them this image of God as the divine accountant. But imagine the shock when they heard what Jesus told them to do with their debts, their moral failures. They would have expected, now when you pray, ask God to help you do more good than bad, and in this way, shore up for yourself a safe standing with God. Instead, What the disciples heard from the mouth of Jesus was this. Now, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Listen to this. Write this down if you have pen and paper, or type it in the notes app of your phone if you wish. You ready? In teaching us to pray for forgiveness, for the forgiveness of debts, Jesus reveals a divine economy, not based on doing good versus bad. Instead, Jesus teaches us, in teaching us to pray for forgiveness, Jesus reveals a divine economy based on grace. A divine economy based not on merits, but based on grace. Now, when you pray, say, our Father caring and compassionate, capable and competent, forgive us our failures as we too forgive those who fail us. We must each ask ourselves, and we must be quite honest in our answer, what type of economy do I want? Do I want to live in a merit-based economy, or do I want to live under an economy of grace? In other words, do you want to live with the attitude that bad people ought to get what they deserve and good people ought to get what they have earned? If not in this life, then at least in the next. It's only fair, you might think. Just got to make sure you do everything right, but to hell with the sinners. That's the attitude of one who desires a merit-based economy. Is this the type of economy you want? Is this the standard by which you want to be judged? Or do you want to live under the economy of grace? 
Here, the mindset is that we are all sinners, including you. We have all failed God and each other. In fact, some of the people who look the best are the worst. Some who appear most religious are actually the very ones whose hearts are rotting at the core. Some who are quick to judge will be first in line on Judgment Day. That's what Jesus taught. Read his parables again in the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't believe me. So here's the truth. We all find ourselves in the desperate situation before God and others. None of us measure up. Our hearts are deceptive above all else, the prophet Jeremiah says, particularly in matters of how good we are and how bad others are. But into our desperate universal situation, listen to this, into our desperate situation enters something we could never have worked for or deserved. Mercy, pity, freely given pardon, grace. In the person of Jesus Christ, God ushers in once and for all the divine economy of grace. Jesus invites us to enter it when he teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is like air in the kingdom of God. It's just a part of the atmosphere of God's kingdom. If you want to live there, you better get used to it. Now, we must be careful not to romanticize the idea of forgiveness. As C.S. Lewis writes, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. (laughs) Isn't that true? Forgiveness is painful. It's hard. It's costly. It costs the father, the son. Here's a good definition from Dallas Willard of what it means to truly forgive someone. He says, we forgive someone of a wrong they have done to us when we decide that we will not make them suffer for it in any way. So if we say we forgive someone, but we still hold a grudge against the person for what they did, and in this way we make them pay for it, we have not forgiven them. If we say we forgive someone, but continually bring up their offense and arguments, We have not forgiven them. We forgive when we decide that we will not make them suffer for their wrong in any way. Jesus himself drives home this point with an illustration. He he tells this illustration to one of his closest followers, a guy named Peter. It's recorded later in Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21. Listen to Jesus' own words. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay his debt. That's what the master did. That's a merit-based economy. But at this, the servant 
fell on his knees before the master. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master, get this, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's a grace-based economy. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded, the one who had been forgiven much. Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him with the exact same words he just used. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into the prison until he could pay the debt. It's only fair. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This, Jesus says, is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. In other words, you will be judged by the standard you use to judge others. If you want to live in a merit-based economy where everyone gets what they deserve because it's only fair, that's how God will treat you on Judgment Day. Have you done enough? Will you have enough saved up? But if you recognize the extent of your debt and begging is not beneath you, and you offer the same mercy to others that you want for yourself, then God will deal with you on the basis of grace. So let me ask you again. You who have been forgiven much by your Heavenly Father, Do you want to live in a merit-based world where everyone gets what they deserve? Do you want to live in a world where God is scrupulously taking notes as he crafts the ultimate naughty and nice list? Or do you want to live in the kingdom of God, which is a realm of existence ruled by grace? Bono and the legendary rock band U2, they understood the difference here. The difference between these two ways of living, these two ways of treating other people, the two ways of treating yourself, these two competing notions of how one gets right with God. Listen to some of their lyrics from their song called Grace. Grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name, Grace. It's the name for a girl. It's also a thought that changed the world. And when she walks on the street, you can hear the strings. Grace finds goodness in everything. My friends, it's exhausting to live in a merit-based economy. 
You're always concerned that you don't measure up. You play the comparison game in every area of your life. You're critical of others, but only because you are all the more critical of yourself. In such a warped system of thinking, God stands tall over it all as a disapproving authority figure who cannot be pleased. That's no way to live. So Jesus invites us to a different way of thinking. Jesus invites us to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Come to me, he says, all you who are tired of carrying the heavy burden of trying to be good enough, and I will give you rest. Jesus cuts the ropes of a merit-based life and sets us free to explore the wide-open countryside of salvation. All of this he does simply by inviting us to pray, Our Father in heaven, forgive us our failures as we too forgave those who failed us. Having said all that, a clarification is in order. Notice, would you, how the economy of grace does not negate the need for responsible actions. To put it differently, God's world of grace is not a world of anarchy where everyone does what they want. Just because God forgives sin doesn't mean our sin doesn't matter. This is a misunderstanding of grace. Our sin matters deeply. After all, our sin is what led Jesus to die for us. The Apostle Paul anticipated this twisted interpretation of grace, that it means we can just do whatever we want. He, he, he anticipated this in Romans chapter 6. The message paraphrase says it well. Paul writes, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. We've, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. So when we accept Jesus' invitation to live in his kingdom, which is ruled by grace, we are first committing to dole out what we have received. We are first committing to a way of life that shows mercy to those who wrong us, to those who cheat the system. As Dallas Willard writes, it is not psychologically possible for us really to know God's pity for us and at the same time be hard-hearted toward others. But that's not all. Grace does not only mean forgiveness. Grace can be defined more broadly it can be defined as all of God's action in our lives. It is God's grace that empowers us to leave the old world of sin behind with its habits of thinking and feeling. It is God's grace that changes our desires for the better so that we increasingly begin to want what God wants, not my will, but yours be done. Grace is the power of God within us, burning like a flame, fueling all kinds of acts of charity 
and love and compassion toward neighbor. This is what the divine economy of grace is all about. And this is the responsibility of those who want to live there. Either we choose to live in it entirely, or we reject it at our own expense. Chrysostom was right, fourth century teacher, when he said, to ask forgiveness from God as a great benefit, and then to deny the same to others, is to mock God. Do you want to receive the grace of God in your life? If so, the follow-up question is this, are you prepared to accept the responsibility of grace? One more thing deserves to be said before we move forward to partake of the Lord's Supper. Actually, the last thing that needs said relates to the Lord's Supper. It's this. According to the New Testament, the forgiveness for which we pray in the Lord's Prayer has already been granted to us in the death of Jesus. We don't have to spend a second worrying about whether we'll get it, whether we'll get God's forgiveness. That's because it is a past act achieved for us in the death of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness that we hope for, the forgiveness that we desperately need but cannot achieve, the forgiveness for which we yearn but cannot earn, it's already been secured for us in the historical event of Jesus' death on the cross. And what's more, according to Jesus, this past forgiveness is made present and real and offered to us anew every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. Listen to Jesus' own words. As he prepared the world for the greatest display of mercy it would ever behold, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So in this way, in this way, my friends, the prayer Jesus taught us to pray has become the meal Jesus gives us to eat. We come to this table praying, forgive us our debts, and we leave this table eager and ready to forgive others their debts. It is here that we learn the beauty of grace. Jesus meets us here. So come to the table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more, Come to the table, you who have been here often, and you who have not been for a very long time. Come to this table, you who have tried to follow Jesus, and you who have failed.